Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, The Book of Judges. In this series, we'll walk through the Book of Judges and let it shine a light into the muddy waters of human rebellion. These stories are some of the most bizarre and interesting stories found anywhere. They're not just historical curiosities, they are glimpses of humanity as applicable today as they were back then. Stories reveal a God working above and through the chaos to bring redemption. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. This morning I want to start with a question. What is the most important thing in your life? Could be a person, could be a thing. Maybe uh, it's that thing that you find yourself thinking about most of the time. That thing that you find yourself thinking about unconsciously most of the time. Could be your children. It could be your spouse. It could be your girlfriend or your boyfriend. It could be uh, your retirement funds. It could be your car. It could be uh, anything. But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, if you tracked how much time you spend with thinking about that most important thing versus how much time you spent on focusing on God, which would get the most of your time? I think that's important for us to think about at this point in the history of the world where it seems like uh, every minute the media gives us more reasons to be afraid of something called the coronavirus. And, uh, you you know, here's the thing that we all need to wrap our heads around. God is greater than a virus, okay? You know, Scripture tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that there will be things that happen in this world that may be frightening, that may be scary, and that many people may react to in ways that make us feel a little scared. But we have a God who tells us to not be afraid because he's given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And we have to to walk in that truth. You know, throughout the history of the world, throughout the history of followers of Jesus, it has been Christ followers who have known that God has not given them a spirit of fear. And so when there were pandemics, when there were issues, who rushed in to help? Who stayed with the sick and the needy at the risk of their own lives? Because they realized that there may be things that may kill the body, But we believe in a God who has the power to kill both the body and the soul. And so we're going to put our trust and our faith in him above everything else. Now, let me go back to that question. What do you think about the most in your life? You know, as for followers of Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that we are supposed to put God in the supreme place in our lives. And today, as we return to the book of Judges, we're actually going to come face-to-face with something that's going on in the nation of Israel that is making them not put God in the supreme place in their lives. So today we're going to look at the eighth judge. His name is Jephthah. But, but before we get to Jephthah, we're going to look a little bit in the 10th chapter of Judges. And um, this is after the... Uh, 
the judges uh, Gideon and his son Abimelech, who have led the people of Israel away from God. They are followed by two more judges. Uh, their names are Tola and Jer. There is not a whole lot mentioned about Tola and Jer, um, but what's probably the most glaring omission about these two judges is that when all the other judges are raised up by God, they are raised up to counter an enemy that has come against Israel. But in Tola and Jer's case, there's no enemy identified. Could it be because Israel has become the enemy of itself? Could it be that, that Israel has turned against itself and against God because all of a sudden they've sort of turned in with the culture that's around them and, and created this do-it-yourself kind of religious belief that we're going to look at today. Here's the first thing that I want us to look at when we're looking at chapter 10. It's the insidiousness of idolatry, the insidiousness of idolatry. So if you're following along in your Bibles, you can. It's also going to be on the screen. We're in chapter 10. We're going to begin with verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. Those are some of the tribes of Israel. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to God, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to help for me from me did I not save you from their hands but you have forsaken me and served other gods so I will no longer save you go and cry out to the gods you have chosen let them save you when you are in trouble but the Israelites said to the Lord we have sinned do with us whatever you think best but please rescue us now and then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. I want to focus on those first verses. Look at what Israel did. Their unfaithfulness to God was huge. It was evil in God's eyes. They went with the flow of the culture. It was cultural relativism at its finest. They worshipped every god that was out there and more. And this was pantheism. And, and when it all boils down, pantheon, pantheism is really a, a do-it-yourself kind of religious worldview where you, where you get to pick and choose the gods that you will worship and how you will worship them. Now, when it comes to all of these non-Israelite people that I just read the list of, we're just going to refer to them as Canaanites for simplicity because they all lived in the land of Canaan. Um, scholars point out that for the Canaanites, there were two main gods. 
There was Baal, and he was considered the king of the gods. And there was uh, Asherah, and she was considered the, the queen of the gods. And there were other lesser gods, but these were the two primaries. Pastor Ray Vanderlane writes this. He said, the worshipers of Baal appeased him by offering sacrifices, usually animals such as sheep or bulls. Some scholars believe that the Canaanites also sacrificed pigs. And that was why God prohibited his people from eating pork, in part to prevent this horrible cult from being established amongst the Israelites. Of course, we know that that's not the case. It, they did, it did get established among them. And then at times of crisis, uh, these followers of Baal would also sacrifice children. Apparently, uh, the firstborn of the community would be sacrificed to, grant, to gain prosperity from this false god, even though uh, we know the Bible calls this practice detestable. So Baal was the king, Asherah was the queen. She was worshipped in various ways, including ritual sex. Although she was believed to be Baal's mother, she was also his mistress. And pagans practiced sympathetic magic. That is, they believed they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior they wished the gods to demonstrate. Believing the sexual union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility, their worshipers engaged in immoral sex to cause the gods to join together, ensuring good harvest from their crops. Now, this practice became the basis for religious prostitution. And even though the Israelites knew that, that sexuality was a gift, they saw it being perverted before their eyes through this public prostitution. Let's go back to what it said in chapter 10, and let's look at uh, what God did because of Israel's behavior. It says he became angry at them, that he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, and they were shattered and crushed. And it goes on, and it says, when they called out to him, he said, didn't I save you before, but you've forsaken me? And you've served other gods. This is idolatry. So, he says, I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. God has had it with the Israelites. He sees their worship as the, of the false gods as really being a two-timing kind of worship that, that whenever they're in trouble, they cry out to God for help, but otherwise they, they worship the false gods. But not this time. God tells them, I'm not going to save you any longer. You can go cry out to the other gods that you've chosen to worship. Now, this is what we need to remember. God sees idolatry as spiritual adultery. That their unfaithfulness to him was like committing adultery in a marriage because he saw that covenant relationship being so strong. You see, God wants his people to worship him and him alone. Now, um, you can ask yourself, did Israel plan to leave God to worship these other gods? Well, to be honest, I don't think it was like a black and white decision where they said, oh, I see this, now I'm going to do this. I, I think what happened, and, and Ray Vanderlane would support this, he said, you know, when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, 
They discovered that this was a land of farmers. It was a place where people grew crops. It was not a place where people were only sheep herders. It was a place that was very different. The desert had been dry and desolate, and there wasn't, it wasn't the kind of soil to raise crops. And this land was fertile beyond anything that, that Israel had ever seen. Now, the Canaanites attributed this, this soil's fertility to the god Baal and Asherah. And that's where the problems began for Israel. They wondered, could the God that they had followed in the wilderness also provide them with fertile farms where they could settle down and grow their own food instead of being nomads who followed their herds? Or would the God of the Canaanites be the one that they would have to turn to to grow crops? Or maybe to be safe, they should worship God and Baal and Asherah. And that's probably how it happened. You know, as it is with, with all sin, it sort of evolves because when we don't guard our hearts and minds, things from the culture, things that are outside of what it means to be a follower of God somehow creep in. Sinful attitudes and acts get acceptance in our lives and in our hearts and our minds, sometimes even before we're aware of it. And that's what makes idolatry so insidious because it's subtle. It's seemingly harmless, but it has grave spiritual consequences. So the Israelites were in a new land. Uh, they, were, they were being exposed to a, a new way of living, farming instead of herding. And, and so they were looking to the Canaanites. They were watching what they did, how they farmed, how they could learn to, to do this for themselves, to grow their own grain and as they did so, not only did they adopt their farming practices, but they began to adopt some of their religious practices because they thought they were part of their farming practices. So it was subtle. It was slight. And it became something that just sort of morphed into them because they, they weren't thinking that, wow, there's farming and then there's religion. They saw it, saw it all together and they absorbed it all. And so in that context... They began to practice idolatry, turning to Baal and Asherah to make their fields grow good crops. That's really what happens in our lives sometimes. You know, we uh, find ourselves in new situations. We experience a new crisis. We react. We began to put our trust in things or in people other than God. We're not intentionally trying to put somebody above God to make someone or something an idol above God, but we just sort of slip into it without recognizing it because we're not taking time to examine what are the core beliefs or attitudes of what we're being exposed to. You know, the reality is that we sort of see that reaction going on right now with the coronavirus, and we have to guard our hearts to say, look, we believe that God is ultimately in charge. Yes, we're going to be prudent. We're going to follow good health care practices. 
but we're not going to get alarmed when the stock market goes crazy. We're not going to get alarmed when the media continues to tell us that uh, more and more people have become sick or have died. We're going to trust in God. And yes, we're going to use our brains because we're going to practice good hand hygiene and all of those things, but we're going to trust in God. Pastor and speaker Ed Stetzer wrote this week something that I thought, thought was great. He said, you know, as Christians, we have to remember what Psalm 20 verse 7 says. He says, it says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord. And then he put it into context of the coronavirus. And this is what he said. Some trust in our financial portfolio and some in our health status, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So yes, we have to use our brains as we practice good healthcare methods, but we also need to trust in God. I mean, here's the deal. If we spend our days worried about things and focus on them over God, we're putting it above God. If you're worried about your retirement account and you placed your hope and your faith and money, then you're not trusting in God. Now, uh, it's good to save money. Sure it is. Uh, but we're not supposed to put it above God. Yes, God has given us money as a tool to take care of our needs and to build his kingdom. But again, it's a tool. It's not something that rises above God. If we put our trust and faith in a a leader in the community or in politics over God, then we are raising something to a level that supersedes God, and that's raising something to to a place of of an idol in our lives. Is it good to follow human leaders? Yes, but no man, no woman should be relied upon higher than God. So a sign that you've made your own religion, you made your own idol, is when you've replaced your trust in God with trust in someone or something else. We need to watch out for those things that can become idols in our lives. Now let's go back to Judges and let's look at chapter 11 and let's learn about Jephthah. When When I think about Jephthah, I think about what I call the disaster of good deeds. So picking up in chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Uh, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are a son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah's had a pretty tough life, okay? Um, And now he's being asked by those that have driven him away 
uh, to be their leader. Why? Because he's a pretty rough and tough guy. They know he's a fighter, that he's a warrior, and they need somebody to uh, lead them. And God's allowing Gilead to bring Jephthah in as a judge. Um, you know, one writer said, actually, he's probably more like a crime boss. That's the kind of uh, guy he was because he hung out with a bunch of guys that did whatever they wanted. You know, here's another one of those situations where we see in the book of Judges that God raises up an unlikely person to become a leader. But, but that's sort of the, one of the teaching points of this book is that God can use any of us to do what he wants to do. So Jephthah accepts this position. He comes in and he leads Gilead and Jephthah shows some wisdom. Uh, he doesn't start off trying to fight. He actually tries to negotiate with the Ammonites, but they won't negotiate with him. So he prepares for battle. And this is what we read in verse 29 and following. It says, the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So let me sort of show what's, share with you what's going on here. Uh, diplomacy didn't work. And so war is inevitable. But, but we read something very important happens to Jephthah. It says the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Here's the point. Anytime the spirit of the Lord comes upon somebody in the Old Testament, you know if they're going into a battle that the victory is guaranteed. All right. So if God grants him victory, which we know he's going to do, then we know that he's going to win. And we know that this vow that he made is crazy. To be honest, it's terrible. We have to ask ourselves, what was he thinking? You know, we, we, as soon as we hear that vow, you know, we, it's, like, it's like a movie where you know there's a disaster coming. You know that nothing good is going to come out of that vow. And that's exactly what happens um, and this is where another one of those cases in the book of Judges where what happens next is just hard to comprehend. It says this, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah after he had won the victory, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, she was an only child. Jephthah's made a vow. And unfortunately, he keeps his vow. Now, look, I, I know this is awful, and maybe you're wondering how could this happen, and, and why did Jephthah do this when we have already seen that the law of Moses, which Jephthah and Israel had, told them that human sacrifice was detestable and that God hates it. So why in the world would Jephthah make this vow, and then why in the world would he follow through with it? Pastor Tim Keller points out some things about Jephthah. He said, you know, Jephthah lived in a time and in a culture where he was deeply desensitized to violence and to the atrocious cruelty of that pagan culture that he was immersed in, that surrounded him. Uh, and he said, this is a most vivid and horrible example about how believers can profess faith in God 
and hold on to some truth and yet have the culture of the world squeeze them into its mold instead of what God wants for them. So because the culture around Jephthah was violent, he let the worldly violence come in and live alongside him and his true beliefs. And so he ignored what Scripture said and he made this vow to sacrifice a human being. But there's even more going on than this. You see, Jephthah was not only infected by the pagan moral code that was around him that said human sacrifice was okay, but he was also infected by the pagan religious view that was around him. And that was that to appease the gods, you had to do good works. It was a, a works righteousness understanding of the character of all gods. So in that culture, Human sacrifice was how you made the gods happy. It was how you bought off a pagan god. So a pagan worshiper did human sacrifice to say something like this. Let me show you how impressed and awed I am by your power. I'm going to sacrifice a human being. You know, the reality was this. this is, is Jephthah, who had grown up in Israel, was taking some of his... Judaism and some of the pagan culture, and he was making his own religion. He was, uh, wasn't fully worshiping the God of Israel, but he also wasn't fully worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. It was a, a do-it-yourself kind of religious view. And, and that's the false religion that kept Jephthah doing what he was doing. He didn't know that God was a God of grace. He sees the God of Israel as basically like the pagan gods, being one whose favor can be earned through flattery and through lavish sacrifices. And think this through. When he obviously realized that the vow he made, he had made in a rash moment, and now he was sorry for it, he could have confessed it as sin and foolishness, and broken his vow to save his daughter. But he doesn't. You know why? Because he doesn't trust the God of Israel, just like he doesn't trust Baal and Asherah. He doesn't trust any God, and he's trapped in this mistrust. And he seems to believe that God will strike him down if he doesn't keep his vow. It's this idea that if I don't do enough good deeds the gods will come down on me. Now for us in 2020, that should be a warning to us. We, we should recognize that there's something here that we have to, to take note of. You know, if we're honest, many of us are far more affected by the culture than, that we live in than we are by the Bible or by God. From Jephthah's life, we can see how he ignored the scriptures that told him that God hates human sacrifice. And we can see how he was influenced and swayed by the culture he was immersed in. But what if we took the mirror that's held before Jephthah and turned it around and looked in it ourselves? If we looked in that mirror at how we lived, if we're honest, we'd see 
how the culture that we live in influences us and creeps into our faith and wants to pull us away from God. Even wants to, to pull us away from understanding the gracious God that we live with. Let's talk about the God of grace. We, we've seen the insidiousness of idolatry. Uh, we've seen uh, the problem with good works. But let's talk about the God of grace. I want you to know that we believe in a God of grace who looked at us, who looked at humanity, and realized that no matter how hard humanity tries, we can never be good enough to be his followers, much less to enter into heaven. But we have a God of grace, a God who loves us and is compassionate on us, who graciously provides us with a way to him and a way to eternal life. That he's saying, listen, I'm above all other gods and there's nothing that you can do to get to me. And I know that, so I'm going to provide a way. It's not based on what we've done. It's based on what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and his death and his resurrection. Look, the world that we live in is filled with official religions, as well as the, the do-it-yourself kind of religions that people make up for themselves. But here's the difference between all of those religions and Christianity. Whether it's Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or other religious worldviews, uh, to be a part of those religions and their views, you get to basically recognize that they're a religious view that's based on doing certain things and not doing other things. It's based on doing good deeds. We call that works righteousness. So basically it says, if you do enough good deeds, you'll be rewarded. If you don't do en enough good deeds, be, deeds, you'll be punished. This religious worldview by all of these religions is spelled very simply D-O. Do. Do this. Do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. How you do determines if you'll be blessed. On the other hand, Christianity, following Jesus Christ, is spelled this way, D-O-N-E, done. It's been done for you and for me. Jesus has done what needs to be done so that we can know God and so that we can receive eternal life. Scripture attests to this. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul writes these words. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The only way that you and I can be saved for eternity, the only way that you and I can be, get to heaven is by the grace of God who sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us. And if we believe that, he gives us that free gift not by anything we've done, but what, by what Jesus has done for us. The only way we can be saved is by the grace of God. 
Salvation does not come from what we do, but from what Jesus has done. And if you believe that, then you're given the promise of eternal life. And you are given the Holy Spirit to fill you with power for the rest of your life here on earth. And this is God's gift to us. No other religion or religious worldview offers that grace-filled gift to humanity. So thinking about what we've read in Judges and thinking about what we've read in Ephesians, what should we do? Well, our response should be twofold. Here's the first thing we should do. We need to repent, okay? We need to repent when we realize we've placed something above God. We need to repent when we realize we've turned following Jesus into a list of do's and don'ts because that's not what it's about. Remember back to chapter 10 in the first part of this message, we read these words from, the Israel, from God in the book of Judges. It said, the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and they served the Lord and he, could, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. What's going on here? Israel has really changed their heart. They've changed their mind. They've recognized their sins so much so it's changing the way they live because they got rid of their foreign gods. And what does it say? It says God could not bear their misery any longer. In other words, the graciousness of God was poured out on Israel again. The graciousness of God has been poured out on this world through what God did for us in Jesus Christ. We're offered that same forgiveness. And, and Scripture tells us that we also need to repent from our sins, that we need to confess them. We need to recognize that we've made mistakes and we've sinned against God. We've committed idolatry. We've turned faith into good works. We need to confess that and repent and stop doing those things and follow Jesus with all of our heart and soul and mind. So like the Israelites, we need to admit our sin and turn the other way. That's what repentance is. Turn away from our sin and follow Jesus. But you know, as, as I share this with you today, I recognize that some of you may have always thought that being a follower of Jesus Christ was about doing good deeds. You know, the reality is this. We don't shy away from the fact that when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's going to change your heart into wanting to live a life for him. And so the fruit of your faith will be doing things for God. In other words, good deeds. But those deeds do not save us. They, they don't stack up in a pile to get you to heaven. All right. That's the fruit of faith. But that's not faith. So maybe you've thought all along, you know, if I do enough good things, then I can get to heaven. Then that's why Jesus died for me. But he didn't die for you to have to do anything. He died to pay for your sins. And all you have to do is say, yes, I believe that. So I want to enter into a time of prayer. And if you've never told Jesus that you believed in him based on your faith and not on doing good deeds, I'm going to give you some words to pray to him to become his follower. And if you pray that prayer, I want to encourage you to, to let me know. Write it on a welcome card and drop it in the basket with your email. And I just want to send you some stuff to encourage you. Or come up and talk to me afterwards because I, I want to help you grow in your faith. But the reality is this. All of us 
also need to repent because we have turned following Jesus into doing good deeds instead of trusting him and letting him bear fruit through our faith. We've also put things above him, and that's idolatry. So I'm going to start off this prayer time giving anyone the opportunity to, to pray and profess faith in Jesus. And then I'm going to move into some silent prayer where we can confess our sins and repent. So if you would all bow your heads, please. Father, as we come into this time to pray and worship you, Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers. For anyone who has never professed faith in Jesus, this is your opportunity right now. Just put these phrases in your own words and just pray them silently to God. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for my sins. And I believe he rose from the dead. And he defeated sin and death. And I know I am saved by faith. And I want to follow him all the days of my life. And we'll say amen to that prayer, but we'll continue in a time of silent prayer and we'll confess our sins to God and repent from putting things above him or turning following Jesus into a religion of do's and don'ts. So let's pray that. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness and for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.